I'm just also really excited that we're finally working on this together. There's a cheap thrill in being able to point and say, that's where they found the body. Yes, yes. Hi there. My name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. The city of Ypsilanti has the most often misspelled and mispronounced name of any community in the state of Michigan. To add to the fun, the city is named after a man who not only had nothing to do with its founding, but was never even in North America. Local historian James Mann shares a story about how this came about. James Mann is a local historian and writer. His books include Wicked Washtenaw County, Wicked Ann Arbor, and Wicked Ypsilanti. He is a regular contributor to the Ypsilanti Gleanings, the publication of the Ypsilanti Historical Society. The city of Ypsilanti has the distinction of having the most often mispronounced and misspelled name of any community in the state of Michigan. There's also some confusion over how this was achieved. We'll try to see if we can set the record straight. Now, the first American settlers in Washtenaw County were led by a man named Benjamin Woodruff, who went up the Huron River to a place about a mile south of the present downtown area of Ypsilanti. This is now under Ford Lake. They established some farms and tried to make a good living. This was not a village in the terms that we would understand it, as there was just six log cabins, no shop, no church, or any official buildings. The children were educated by the women of the community in one of the cabins. This, sadly, was doomed to failure because it was in the lowlands of the area, did not have the water power for mills, and had a tendency to flood during the spring rains. The final end came when the Chicago Road, now Michigan Avenue, was surveyed a mile to the north following the Salt Trail. This area was known as the French Claims. Now, most histories of Ypsilanti state that the Godfroy's trading post at this point was established in 1809. This is mistaken. The reason for this will be made explained later, but there had actually been a community here for some time. This was an area where a number of Native American trails came together along the Huron River, which was also used for transportation in the canoes, 
and the perfect place to establish a French trading post. Exactly when the trading post was established is unclear. However, in about 1772, a British officer following the Salt Trail reported at the Huron River that there was six large cabins of the Pukawatanese. He also said that the river was about 50 feet wide, two and a half feet deep, and the road here was very bad. Then a Hugh Heward traveled the road in 1790, seeking to find a pathway to connect the Huron River and the Grand Rivers, just so that travel could be done by water from Lake Erie to Lake Michigan. He followed the wrong paths and ended up having to go back to Santian's village, present day Ypsilanti, where he met Gabriel Godfroy, and by the assistance of Mr. Godfroy, who seemed very obliging, engaged an Indian with two horses. He then went to the camp where he had left his companions with supplies, and they continued on, this time on the right path. Now, sometime by 1796, Godfrey took over the trading post from his predecessor, and in 1907, the Congress of the United States passed a law that any claim of the British or the French established before 1796, as when the Americans took over the territory, would be recognized if a claim was filed with the proper commission in Detroit. Godfrey and two of his partners filed claims that are the French claims. His trial with the track of land at the land office in Detroit was December 31st, 1808. His claim, a track of land situated on River Huron of Lake Erie, consisting 10 acres in front by 60 in depth, bounded in front by the lands of François Pepin and below by uncontested lands. I claim by virtue of procession, occupancy, and improvements made off. Whereupon, recorded the American State Papers, Francis Regis was brought forward as a witness in behalf of the claimants, who being duly sworn to pose and said that previous to the 1st of July, 1796, Gabriel Gonfroy was in possession and occupancy of the premises and had caused part of the said premises to be cultivated every year to this day, that a large orchard is planted thereon and about 10 aprons, a measure of land in France, are under cultivation. That same year in April, a man named Charles Coven stated that he had always kept a tenant on the same and had caused part of this tract to be cultivated every year. A house is erected on the premises, an orchard planter, and about 15 aprons under cultivation. Further witness stated several buildings are erected on the premises and part of the premises have been cultivated every year. About six or seven aprons are under cultivation. The commission ruled, thereupon it does appear to the commissioners that the claimant is entitled to the above described tract of land and that he have a certificate thereof which certified shall be and that he caused the same to be surveyed and a plot of the survey with the quantity of land therein contained be returned to the register of the land office at Detroit. Commissioners probably never sent anyone to the site to confirm the claims. Fur trading post was destroyed by fire in 1815 and the structure rebuilt. In time, the Native Americans moved westward and the fur traders followed them. The land was sold to three investors in the 1820s John Stewart, William Hayward, 
and Judge Augustus Woodward. Jonathan Morton moved to the site in 1824 and noted that there were two shanties of poles. Stewart and Hayward lived in the area, and Morton moved into what was left of the old fur trading post, which he used as a tavern and shop. There, Haywood and Stewart would debate what to name the community they were planning to settle there. One wanted to entitle it Waterville, in recognition to the water power of the river. Harwood wished it to be called Palmyra, after the community where he was from in New York State. The men had laid out the city and had it plotted by a Mr. Brookfield, who was given the task of going to Detroit and explaining that the men had decided to name it Springfield to Judge Woodward. Judge Woodward was the Chief Justice of the Territorial Supreme Court of Michigan, and his word, in a very real sense, was law. He was also the principal investor. Woodward was the first attorney to open an office in the federal city that is now Washington, D.C. He was described as a model of Washington Irving's Ichabod Crane being six foot three or four inches tall, thin, shallow, and stooped. His long, narrow face was dominated by a big nose. His only outward vestige of vanity was a generous crop of thick black hair. His contemporaries commented on his slovenliness. He was also said to be a man of middle age, a hardened bachelor who wore nut-brown clothing. He slept in his office, which was never swept, and was eccentric and erratic. His friends were few, and his practice was so small he hardly made a living. One of his friends was Thomas Jefferson, the President of the United States, who appointed him Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for the Territorial of Michigan in 1805. He arrived at Detroit, the territorial capital, two weeks after the great fire that had destroyed the community. Few buildings were left standing. Woodward now took his hand to urban planning. He then came up with a design that was followed with the main boulevards radiating from the center of the city like the spokes of a wheel. The main one was named Woodward. He insisted that it was not named for him, but it was named because the road went toward the woods. He was described as a brilliant eccentric. Decisions were the model of legal thought. His behavior, strange. This is a man who literally took a bath by sitting in a chair in the rain. The comments of his neighbors are not recorded. So it was to this man, Mr. Brookfield, went to tell him that the new community was to be called Springfield. Woodward disagreed, and he said he wanted it named Ypsilanti. Now, where did this come from? Some say it's an Indian word. No, it's Greek. The big news story of the day, the 1820s, was the Greek War for Independence against the Ottoman Turks, led by two brothers, Alex and Demetrius Ypsilantis. Demetrius was being called the George Washington of the Greek War for Independence. His exploits included being held under siege in a citadel with 300 men surrounded by 6,000 Turkish soldiers. When the supplies ran out, he led his men to safety without the loss of a single man. So it was this man for whom the city was to be named. And as I said, Woodward's word was literally law, so he prevailed. And being the primary investor probably helped too. The city has had its good years and its bad years since then. In the early 20th century, one day, by the way, 
a train pulled in with the German prince on a tour of the United States. He was received by a delegation at the depot and his wife was handed a bouquet of flowers from the Michigan Central Gardens. And in the words of tourists everywhere, they asked, where are we? They were told, Ypsilanti. The prince asked that the train be held for five minutes. The two ran to the depot, bought postcards, wrote out the addresses of family in Europe, and asked that the postmark be clearly stamped. As they returned to the train, the prince explained, as you know, before we were married, my wife was the princess Ypsilantis of Greece. Your station agent's clever use of this knowledge moves us deeply. The station agent's response is not known as no one had been aware of that. And so Ypsilanti has the distinction of being the community in Michigan most often mispronounced and misspelled. All right. Okay. Any questions? A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to circulation clerk Jerome Drummond about transportation in early Ypsilanti. If you don't want to miss it or other episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.